Good morning, everyone. How the heck are you? Uh, yeah, you sure? I'm doing great. I'm doing fantastic. I am so excited to be here with you guys. I just love that we get to do this. We get to do this. Every weekend we get to do this and stuff like this throughout the week. What a joy. Thank you for being here. I hope you guys are having a great week. I, um, I think I mentioned last week that Pastor John had um, spoke at that church up in Sisters. It's called VAST, V as in Victor, V-A-S-T, VAST Church. And so I listened to the message this, uh, this week. Um, one of the finest things my ears have ever heard. One of the best messages I have ever heard in my life, honestly. 78 years old, and he's just killing it. He's slaying it. If you have a chance, go to vastchurch.org and listen to John's message. I cried four or five times during the message. It just blew my mind. So I called him on Friday. I see that. He answers the phone and he goes, What do you want, you big horse? He's not as nice as you think. And I said, You know, he goes, How's it going? I said, I've had better weeks, PJ. He says, What's going on? I says, You know, I don't need any help looking bad. I can do fine just by myself. And you got to go preach that effectively and make me look bad? Anyway, so we had a few laughs about that. I could not stop complimenting him. I'm serious. If you have a chance to listen to it, one of the finest things these ears have um, had a chance to experience a, a message. Just absolutely amazing. I'm so proud of him. I'm so proud to know him. I'm so proud of the legacy he um, set at this church. Good to be with you guys. We are in Mark chapter 12. We're in verses 28 through 44, the end of chapter 12. We're going to be uh, going to the end of chapter 12 today. Um, good stuff. Really, really good stuff. You know, I've been um, 51 years old. I got saved when I was 15. For 36 years, I've been walking with the Lord. And every time over those 36 years I have communion, I pray that it would be just more uh, clear and more impacting uh, in my life, that I have a deeper understanding of, of communion and what Christ did, His crucifixion and His resurrection. And, uh, but nothing um, has impacted my understanding of Christ and His death and resurrection more than the time we've been spending since January going through the Gospel of Mark and understanding the life of Christ. And we're days away from His, from his crucifixion. And I, uh, I just hope and pray that we all gain a clear understanding of the depth of His love for us as displayed on, on that cross. It's amazing. It's like an experience I've never had before and I'm so grateful for it. Turn to Mark chapter 12. And we're going to read from 28 all the way to the end of the chapter to 44. I think that's 17 verses. There's four stanzas in our time or in our text today. Mark 12, starting at verse 28. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well. He asked him, what commandment is the foremost of all? And Jesus answered, the foremost is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. Do we love our Lord like that? And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself do we love our neighbor as ourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to Jesus, Right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him 
with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. The whole sacrificial system, it's better to do those things than to do the whole sacrificial system. And so when Jesus saw that uh, the scribe had answered intelligently, he said to the scribe, you are not far from the kingdom of heaven. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Our second stanza, verse 35, And Jesus began to say as he taught in the temple, How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said in the Holy Spirit, and and this is from Psalm 110, verse 1, David himself said when he wrote that psalm, The Lord said to my Lord, in other words, Yahweh said to Jesus, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he David's son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Our third stanza, verse 38, in his teaching he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and like respectful greetings in the marketplaces and chief seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for appearances' sake offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. In our last stanza, oh, I can't wait to get to this when we have our time together this morning. He sat down opposite the treasury and he began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury and many rich were putting in large sums. And a poor widow came and she put in two small copper coins which amount to a cent. Calling his disciples, he said to them, truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. For they all put in out of their surplus, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she owned and all that she had to live on. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word that you've given for us to mold us and shape us into the image of your Son. And so we beg you, Lord, to have your way with us this morning. Lord, we thank you for the privilege that we have to gather around your word and focus our affections and our attention to you. You're so worthy of our attention and our praise. And we ask this in Jesus' name and everyone said, it's really good to be with you guys this morning. Thanks for being here. I love doing this. What a treat. Let me kind of give you the setting of what's going on here. So from, turn to Mark 11, verse 27. In 11.27, if you look, it says that they came again, Jesus and his disciples in 11.27, they came again to Jerusalem, and he goes to the temple. So from 11.27 all the way until we end our chapter 12 today, from 11.27 to 12.44, all takes place in the temple. And it's Jesus having dialogue with different people. He's in the temple having dialogue with the chief priests, the scribes, the elders, the Pharisees, the Herodians, the Sadducees, and now here with this scribe. And during that dialogue from 1127 to 1244, there are questions that are being asked. There are counter-questions that Jesus uses to teach and to put things back on them because their hearts were not in the right place. He has silencing answers that we see Jesus give. He gives a a, a parable about rebellious behavior in 12 verses 1 through 11. There are attempted verbal traps 
that um, some of these people speak against Jesus. There are desires to seize the Lord. There is amazement at His wisdom. And then here in our verses for today, Jesus brings this dialogue to a close with a combination of two things where He uh, commends good behavior and condemns bad behavior. That's what's going on from 1127 all the way to 1244. Let me give you our outline for our four stanzas today. The first one is live in a foremost life where the scribe says, what's the foremost commandment? And then Jesus tells him, love the Lord your God and love people as yourself. That's the foremost commandment. We are to live foremost lives. And we'll unpack that in a second. And then Jesus dies and identified death. Mark wants the reader to know that when Jesus dies, he's not just dying because he's dying for a cause. He's dying because he's the Messiah. He's the Messiah. It's the most purposeful death ever. And so Jesus points that out, or Mark does as well. And then he talks about a condemned receiving, that these religious leaders would uh, just have this poor behavior and they would abuse their leadership position and receive in an ungodly way. And so he condemns that. And then he commends the giving of the, of the widow and her two coins, which is one of the most powerful stories in all of Scripture. And I can't wait to share that with you. So that's our outline for today. Let's read our uh, first stanza, 12, uh, starting at verse 28 through 34. One of the scribes comes uh, after uh, came and heard them arguing. And Jesus was just arguing with the Sadducees, starting in verse 18. So the scribe comes, hears them arguing, he recognized that Jesus had answered them well, I can imagine. And he asked him, what commandment is the foremost? And Jesus tells him, and he quotes from the Old Testament. The foremost is here, O Israel. The Lord is one Lord. And you shall love that one Lord with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is similar. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There's no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe confirms what he hears. He says, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one. And there is no one else besides him. Finally, a scribe that gets it. Right? And there were many others, of course, but this is the first recording of a religious leader that finally understood what Jesus was, who Jesus was and what he was teaching. You have truly stated um, that he is one. There is no one else besides him, and to love him with all the heart, understanding, strength, and to love uh, one's neighbor as himself. And that it is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, which I love, He said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. So again, just to reiterate, from 1127 all the way to 1244, all this dialogue in the temple. And here's the order. There was four confrontations and then one confirmation after that. Let me give those to you in a row, starting in verse 27. You don't have to go there if you want. The first, from 1127 to 1244, the first one is a conflict in the temple with chief priests and scribes and elders about authority. And Jesus stumps them with his answer, and they give no reply. That's the first conflict. The second conflict is in the form of a parable that Jesus speaks against them, which also silences them and creates within them a desire or almost a need to seize him and kill him. The third conflict is with the Pharisees and the Herodians in Mark 12, 13 through 17, when they attempt to trap Jesus about whether or not they should pay their taxes to Caesar, which led again with his answer or their, his counter question, if you will, which led to their silence and to their amazement, verse 17 records, that they were silent and amazed. And then the fourth conflict comes up 
with the Sadducees in Mark 12, 18 through 27, who also tried to trap him with a question about the resurrection. And here, too, Jesus points to their incorrect thinking because they don't understand the word of God or the power of God, and they, too, remain silent. But then, after four confrontations, we get a confirmation. I love that Mark throws that in there for us. From a scribe, somebody who should know the law of God and does know the law of God and confirms that Jesus is absolutely speaking and preaching truth. As a reader, wouldn't you find this helpful and encouraging? I would. And Mark puts it in there for that reason. Christ did not need the scribe's confirmation, but because he was a man of authority, it put some credibility and status upon what Christ said. I would appreciate that as a reader. So from Mark 11.27 to 12.44, again, all of that dialogue takes place in the temple. Now, the New Testament describes the body of Christ as the temple where our Lord dwells. Amen? The New Testament describes our lives as the temple, each believer as a temple where our Lord dwells. When we come to the temple, when we come to engage with Jesus, because otherwise this is, just, this is just brick and mortar, right? The Lord dwells here because His church is here. Otherwise, it's just a doggone building. But when we come to the temple, whatever that looks like, you know, whether it's in church or time alone with the Lord, do we have conflict with Him when we come? That's okay. That's what was happening in the temple from 1127 to 1244. Do we come and have conflict with the Lord? That's okay. He can handle it. Do we come to confirm the Lord? So when I preach something or Pastor Dave's preaching something, that's when we give those amens and the hallelujahs and we confirm what's going on. When, when the worship team is leading us in worship, do we confirm what they're doing and we praise the Lord to confirm what we're hearing and, and how we're being led in worship? Do we come, as I mentioned last week, where those four conflicts, they all came accusatively, but the scribe comes inquisitively. Do we come as inquisitive people or do we come to church as accusative people? I pray that we come as inquisitive people like the scribe came to church as inquisitive, not accusative. Notice that in almost every other uh, instance when these leaders asked Jesus a question, we talked about this last week, that he responded with something called a counter-question. He doesn't do that with the scribe because the scribe's heart's in the right place. And so he engages him in conversation. I think that's powerful. And I think the Lord engages us when we truly seek him, when we truly desire to learn from him, he engages us. So whatever your reason is for coming to the Lord, He knows how to silence us when we need it. He knows how to amaze us when we need it. He knows how to humble us when we need it. He knows how to direct us when we need it. I just say, come. He knows what to do. Just come to Jesus regardless of your intent. Want to have conflict with him? Go to Jesus. You want to confirm him? Go to Jesus. Whatever the reason, go to Jesus. He can handle it. Wouldn't you agree, church, that knowing how to serve and follow and be obedient to our Lord is important? If you think that's important, do this. If you can't raise your hand, grab the person's hand that can't raise their hand and raise it for him. It's important. We need to know how to be obedient and how to follow and serve our Lord. But wouldn't you also agree that sometimes it's complicated? This can become complicated, can't it? For me, it can. For lots of people, it can. It's a juggernaut, this thing called Scripture. It's a juggernaut. We have to. We have to. I like to say we get to. We have to or we get to wrestle 
with Scripture. We get to wrestle with Scripture and language and culture that dates back to some parts of the Old Testament to over 4,000 years ago. A language and a culture. It's challenging, right? At the time that this scribe asked this question of Jesus, what is the greatest commandment? Not only did he have the Old Testament Scriptures, which, by the way, is more than twice as long as our New Testament Scriptures, right? Which means it's important. Not only did the scribe have the Old Testament Scriptures, his question to Jesus also reflects the fact that scribes had identified 613 other written commandments that they came up with. So they have the Old Testament Scriptures and 613 of their own written commandments. Of those 613, 365 were of the negative nature, don't do this, and 248 were of the positive nature, do this. Right? So you have the Old Testament Scriptures that the the scribe had to wrestle with and the 613 commandments that they made up and... On top of that, they had oral commandments or oral traditions. Anybody know how many? Over 5,000. At a certain point, it's like, Jesus, hook a brother up. Can we kind of narrow this down a little bit, right? Like, I got the entire Old Testament, 613 of our own commandments, 5,000 plus oral commandments. Somebody help me out. That's where his question's coming from. They also further divided all these things into what they called heavy and light categories. And one of their favorite things to do was to discuss with one another these divine commandments, which of them was the greatest or the foremost. And it just made me think that sometimes perhaps Christianity can appear or feel the same way. How do I do this thing? How do I become a pleasing follower of Jesus Christ. This is tough. Okay, so here's the thing. You know, I'm never afraid to ask for anything, right? I'm kind of humble that way. If you want to send me gifts, send me gifts. I'll receive them with joy. If you ever want to buy me a book, so this is the way I'm wired. If you're going to buy me a book, don't ever buy me a book that's like 27 ways to be a good husband, you know, 87 ways to be a good pastor, 13 ways to eat food right. Like, if it, I can't. It's just too many to remember. Like, I can barely do three. So let's just make sure, like, three ways to be a good husband. I might be able to digest that. But, like, one's perfect. Like, one way to be a better husband. One way to be a better father. One way, and it's like 15, 18 pages long. You know, it's a real small book. You know, big letters, lots of pictures. I mean, I just, that's all I can, I mean, honestly, I just, I hate books that are like, right, anything double digits or more ways to do something. I just can't do it. It's too much. I can't fit that in my brain. Right? If you tell me there's 27 ways to be a better husband, why try? I can't do 27. That's a lot. I'm a guy. Right? You get what I'm saying. That's my lead. So if and when you buy me a book, don't buy one of those books, right? So I can appreciate the scribe's question. I so appreciate that Jesus here in Mark 12 tells us plainly how you and I can live a foremost life. I love that. He says foremost three times it's mentioned here. Check this out. In verse 28, the scribe came, uh, asked him at the end, what commandment is the foremost? In verse 29, Jesus answered, the foremost is. And then he tells, love God, love others. And at the end of 31, he says it again. There is no other foremost commandment than these. Anytime you see something three times, and Mark's really good at doing threes. He does lots of things in threes. 
right? Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Lots of things happen in threes. And what's funny to me, and I kind of made reference to this already, is, you know, in Bible times it was a male-dominated culture. And I'm actually thankful for this because it was a man that asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus, like, kind of gave him one, like maybe two, like love God and love others, right? If a woman had answered that, had asked that question, Jesus could have actually given more, right? Because a woman can handle it. And they can say, well, okay, you're a woman. Well, here are the 50 ways, here are the 50 greatest commandments. And a woman would walk away like, yeah, no problem. But because it's a guy, he's like, just tell me one. Just tell me one. I love that. I just think that's perfect for me at least. Further proof. And so Jesus does, and he quotes from two places. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5, which we're not going to turn to, and Leviticus 19, verse 18. Leviticus and Deuteronomy, when Jesus was quoted, it was written about 1,500 years prior. And it's so great to know that 1,500 years later, here Jesus is talking to a scribe that nothing has changed. What God spoke 1,500 years ago in in, uh, Leviticus and in Deuteronomy, Jesus says the same thing. Love God and love people. Love God with all you have and love people as yourself. That will never change. It was the mark of a mature believer in the Old Testament uh, times. It was the mark of a mature God follower in New Testament times. It's the mark of a mature God follower in our time. And it will be the mark of a mature God follower in the times moving forward. Love God with all you have. And love the person to your left and the person to your right and the person ahead of you and behind you and everybody out there to love them as yourself. It will never change church can become a lot of different things, right? To a lot of different people. It can. It can become a lot of different things to a lot of different people. But our loving Lord simply has in mind for us to be His loving followers. Check out John 13, 34 and 35. He says, The new commandment I give to you that you love one another even as I have loved you so much so that He died for us, right? That you also love one another. Why? Because by this, what a testimony. All men will know that you are My disciples, which means they won't know you're My disciples if you don't love one another, if you have love one for another. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13. Does anybody know what we know 1 Corinthians 13 as? Anybody? Huh? The love chapter. It's the love chapter. When I go to a wedding, I pray they don't come out, they don't share out of 1 Corinthians 13. Because it's like, to me, it's like it's so, it's been done so many times. I'm like, oh man, I never do the love chapter in my weddings. I just can't do it. But it's fantastic verses. I just can't do it in a wedding. Right? It's the love chapter. Look how powerful this is, church. If I speak with tongues of men and of angels, but I don't love... Blah, 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 blah. Noisy gong, clanging cymbal. That's all that's going to be heard. If I have a gift of prophecy, and I know all mysteries, I'm brilliant in God's Word, and I have all faith so as to move mountains or remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. I am nothing. God doesn't esteem that stuff. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, We go to Honduras and do incredible work there. But we don't love. 
Save your money, man. Go to Hawaii. Seriously. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I surrender my body to be burned, but I don't love, I profit in no way, shape, or form. This is powerful. Powerful. And so... I believe that we spend time in church, we spend time in the Word, we spend time on our knees, we spend time in serving, we spend time in small groups, we spend time in worship with the sole intent of learning how to do what? How to love well. If we don't love well, we are nothing. It profits us nothing. Wow, that's powerful. Let me put a spin on an uh, infamous question or quote, if you will. When you see somebody you haven't seen them in a long time, and you say, so how's your love life? We know that question? So how's your love life? And it's kind of got a little bit of a sometimes negative twinge to it, if you will, right? People would want to you know, make sure they're getting married or whatever. So how's your love life, right? But wouldn't that be a great question for us to ask in the church? Hey, Mickey, how's your love life? Mickey, no, Mickey, stay, stay with me, Mickey. <laughs> okay, Mickey's a bad example. Let's try someone else. <laughs> you, you know, I, I have a lot of people to choose from, and I chose you. That's my, it's my own fault, Mickey. You get what I'm saying, right? Everybody but Mickey, right? How's your love life? How's your love life, Susan? How are you loving God, and how are you loving others? Tom, how's your love life? How are you loving God, and how are you loving others? Not something cool we learned out of Scripture. Not some crazy, cool doctrine that's fantastic. Doctrine's fantastic, but how are we loving? How are we loving each other? How are we loving God? How is your love life? Do we love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, with everything, or do we hold back? Do we love our neighbor as ourselves? Because if we don't, we are breaking the command that Jesus says... When the scribe asks him, which is the foremost, love God and love people. If we're not doing that, we're breaking this command. Romans 13, 8 through 10, perfect verse to look at, says, Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, these things, these commandments that come out of the Ten Commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love doesn't do wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. You want to do all of this well? Love God and love His people. And you do all of this well, perfectly. Then you have an audience with people and you have an audience with God. I love that. Turn to 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4. Right toward, uh, yeah, to the right of Mark, towards the end of the... Uh, New Testament, after Hebrews and James and First and Second Peter, you'll find First John chapter four. We're going to read seven through twenty-one. First John four, starting at verse seven. Beloved, I just love the way it starts. We're loved. Beloved, let us love one another. Loves from God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Which means if you don't love, you're not born of God and you don't know God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. And by this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to die for us. 
Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us. That's how we see Him. And His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us His Spirit, enabling us to love. When we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in Him and He abides in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in Him. You're getting the picture. And by this, love is perfected in us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as He is, so also are we in the world. You want to be pure before the Lord? You want to have confidence in the day of judgment? We better love Him and love others. That's the way we gain confidence before our Lord. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because He first loved us. So, church, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Can I get an amen? Powerful stuff. Church, we don't live by rules, but by relationships. We don't live by rules, but by relationships. A loving relationship to our God, which enables us to have loving relationships with each other. Love, agape love, is not a feeling. It's a gift from our Lord to be used towards Him and towards one another. In Galatians 5.22, it says, The fruit of the Spirit is, the first thing mentioned is what? Love. And I love, uh, in Mark 12, in this stanza, verse 34, uh, where it says in the beginning of 34, When Jesus saw that He had answered intelligently, I love that. He answered intelligently. And I just want to say that the most brilliant thing we can do, the most brilliant thing we can do is to realize that we can put our faith in our Lord. It's the most brilliant thing we can do is put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We, interesting in this stanza, we don't ultimately know what became of the scribe, do we? Because Jesus said, you're not far from the kingdom of heaven. He wasn't there yet. But he was on the right path. Many of us come close, and perhaps this, this scribe never made it all the way. He says, you're close. You're not far. Many of us come close, but unfortunately, some of us never come fully. I pray that if you're coming close, that you come fully. Come fully to our Lord. It's the most intelligent thing you can do to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Our second stanza, verses 35 through 37. We're going to do the second and third stanzas pretty quick and then we'll get to the last one about the widow and the, the two coins. 35, Jesus uh, began to teach uh, in the temple, or he continued to teach, how is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? David himself said in, in a psalm, and I love how you can see the, the trinity here, that David said the Holy Spirit, the Lord, Yahweh said to my Lord, which is Adonai, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is Jesus also his son? It's cool that it's now our Lord's turn to ask the questions as this dialogue comes to a close. And he asks the most important question of all. Who is the Messiah? Nothing's more important than that. Nothing's more important than understanding who the Messiah is. If we're wrong about Jesus Christ, then we're wrong about salvation. 
Jesus is teaching about his own virgin birth. And he quotes Psalm 110, verse 1. And Jesus asks, how could it be that uh, David would call his own great, 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 great grandson his Lord? And the Jews believed, which was true, that Messiah would be David's son through Mary, through the flesh. But the only way David, uh, David's son could also be his Lord is if the Messiah were God come in human flesh. And the answer, of course, is the Lord's miraculous conception and virgin birth. Look at Isaiah 7, 14. It says, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call His name what? Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. That's what Emmanuel means. God with us in the form of Jesus. Absolutely. So knowing that the cross is just days away, Mark is firmly establishing Jesus as the Messiah, born of a virgin, prophesied about to help the reader know that while his crucifixion is indeed brutal, it is also beautiful and a necessary part of our Lord's loving response and our Lord's loving redemptive work in the world. Our third stanza, 38, 39, and 40. In his teaching, he was saying, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, and they like respectful greetings in the marketplaces, and chief seats in the synagogues, and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' homes, and for appearance's sake, offer long prayers. These will receive greater condemnation. Wow. Two things that he does in these verses here. He criticizes the scribes, because of their, their lives contradicted the very scriptures that they taught. But he also cautions the church against them, doesn't he? He criticizes the scribes directly and cautions the church about them. It's not their clothing that was sinful, it was their prideful behavior. We all have to fight that, right? They placed value on things, they placed value on positions in life that would detract from the very thing that we just covered, which is love others. Love God. Don't love yourself and and esteem yourself above others. And that's what they were doing, the very thing that Jesus just told us not to do. Consider how Jesus lived his life. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. Consider how Jesus lived his life compared to these scribes. Philippians 2, starting at verse 3. Do nothing, not one thing, from selfish or empty conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than you. Do not merely, I love the word merely. Don't merely look out for your own personal interest. Anybody can do that. But also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourself because it was also in Christ. What about Him? Who, although He existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. He would not even regard it. In other words, He would not hold on to His equality with God. He's like, nope, I'm letting it go. I'm not going to regard it as a thing to be grasped. I'm not going to touch it. But He emptied Himself right? And he took something with an empty hand. He, he didn't take that, right? He let that go. And what did he do? He took, taking the form of a bondservant. That's what he, he gave up his God-likeness. 
dropped that and grabbed bondservantness. It blows my mind. Taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The lowest of lows. If you were crucified, you were the lowest of lows. He didn't just treat others as himself. He treated others as better than himself. And died the most humiliating, painful death we could ever imagine. Where the entire city and people coming and going into a city would walk by for the sole intent of being humiliated on the cross and for people to hurl abuses that, at him. Breaks my heart. That's how he took on his role of loving God and loving others. Don't think for a minute that that only applies to scribes or pastors or teachers or whatever you want to call people of leadership or elders or trustees. It can apply to anybody in the church. Church, Our sinful nature allows us to be so easily enticed and tempted to draw attention to ourselves through the various ministries and gifts that the Lord has given us and called us to. That doesn't happen a lot in this church. We've got some very humble people, a lot of people doing a lot of things here, and thank you so much for your humility. Pray that that always remains so. It is my prayer that at all times the Lord gets all the attention. It is my prayer that at all times the Lord gets all the attention. All the time, all the attention. And it says in uh, our verses in Mark 12, so easy for me to lose my place. We're in Mark 12, right? That, I'm sorry, the end of verse 40, that these will receive greater condemnation. They will receive greater condemnation. It's a lot of pressure. They are positioned, because they're going to receive greater condemnation, it's because they're positioned to infect in their leadership. They're positioned to infect others with their pride and their hypocrisy. Well, the scribe did it, the pastor did it, the leader did it, so I thought it was okay to be hypocritical and prideful. No, no. And so, church, my encouragement to you is stand on your guard. For me, for Pastor Dave, for Pastor Doug Atterbury, for the elders and trustees, if there's stuff that we're doing that's hypocritical or prideful, please call us on it. Let us know. But as importantly, I hope you're praying for us. I hope we need you to pray for us. Pray for me. If you're doing it, keep doing it. If you're not, please start. Even if it's just once a week, once a month, please pray for me. Pray for Pastor Dave. Pray for Pastor Doug. Go on our website and pray for the four elders. Find out who the four elders are. Pray for the four trustees. We need your prayers desperately. And lastly, so excited about this, our last four verses. He sat down opposite the treasury and began observing how the people were putting money into the treasury. And many rich were putting in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which amount to a cent. And he calls his disciples, check this out. Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all the contributors to the treasury. They all put it out of their surplus, but she out of her poverty put in everything she owned, all that she had to live on. There's a saying that is thought to have originated from the pubs of Ireland. And that saying is this, put your money where your mouth is. It seems fitting that Jesus would follow his teaching on loving God with everything we have, our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and our neighbor as ourselves, that he would uh, finish it with a teaching about finances. 
Consider, though, the undercurrent of what's being said in these four verses, though. Jesus isn't watching what they give, but what they kept back for themselves. It's not so much what they gave, it's what they kept back for themselves. The rich gave large amounts, but it was not commended. I did a comparison of the wealthy and the widow. Here's what the verses say, that there were many rich. And then the next verse says there was a poor, singular, right? Many rich and then a poor woman, a poor widow. And then the next verse says they gave large sums, is what it says in Scripture, right? And she gave two coins. The two coins, each coin, the coin is called a leptin, not leptin, it's L-E-P-T-O-N, a leptin is the smallest coin in Palestine, the smallest value. It's one sixty-fourth of a denarius. What's a denarius? Anybody know? It's one day's wages. Let's say you work an eight-hour day. I love math. I love that I get to do this, right? So if you work an eight-hour day, it's one hour is one-eighth. So now we're at one-eighth. I now need one-eighth of that one-eighth. So if I get one hour, let's say I make 16 bucks an hour. What's one-eighth of $16? Two bucks. So that coin in today's value, that is roughly two bucks. She had two, two coins. She had four dollars on her person. That was her entire net worth. If somebody were to come up to her and say, you have change for a five, she couldn't give change for a five. What else? They gave surplus base. That's what it says. They gave out of their surplus. And she gave poverty based. And then lastly, ultimately they gave what? They gave nothing. And she gave what? But remember the undercurrent is what they held back. So reverse that. They held back what? Everything. They held back everything and she held back what? Nothing. Maybe that's what it means when he starts off, what's the greatest commandment? To love the Lord our God with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, all of our strength. Hold back nothing. It it blows my mind. This woman blows my mind. Jesus is not focused on the amount of the gift, but at the heart of the gift. This is the only thing Jesus is interested in, in is in our heart. When I start preparing a message on Tuesday, I make a couple copies of the text and I just take a bunch of different colored pens. It's just madness. I just start scribbling and lining. I don't even know half the stuff I don't use more than that. But at the time, it's just stuff that I'm seeing. And this is one of the first things I wrote when I read about this woman. So this is my own quote. This is what I wrote with just an ink pen, right? Jesus sits and observes and sees a poor woman an obscure, quiet, needy, unimportant woman and makes a huge deal of her. He calls the disciples, come check this woman out, man. Look what she's doing. He makes a huge deal of her. Why? Because she's now Hebrews 11 material. I'll explain that in a second. She saw, understood, appreciated the value that others did not see. And she's now Philippians 3 material. That was my first instinct. What's Hebrews 11 material? Anybody know? What's Hebrews 11? It's the hall of fame of people with great faith. Hebrews 11. Go read Hebrews 11. It's all about these people with great faith. I read the story. It's like she belongs in Hebrews 11. She's in the hall of fame. Oh my word. This woman with two copper coins is Hebrews 11 material. And then I thought she's Philippians 3 material. 
Philippians 3 is when Paul says that I count everything rubbish as trash compared to knowing my God and my King. Everything else is meaningless and purposeless. This woman is Hebrews 11 and Philippians 3 material and it blows my mind. I'm so thankful for her. Matthew Henry says this about this scripture. He says, because here's the deal. She's got four bucks, man, and she gives it away. Why? She wanted to love her God and she wanted to love other people because she knew that the temple where she left it was to help people. She's in need herself. Who does that? And so Matthew Henry says this, it's actually rare to find anyone that would not actually condemn her or blame this widow, that we won't hardly be able to expect to find any that will imitate her. Most people would just say, well, that's just nuts. You have four bucks, man. You've got to keep your four bucks. Almost everybody would blame her that you won't expect to find any that will actually imitate her. And yet our Savior commends her. And therefore we are sure that she did very well and wisely. If Christ saith well done, no matter who saith otherwise, then we must hence learn. And that's why Jesus calls over his 12 disciples and he's like, check this out. I don't know if I've had a moment where Jesus has stopped and grabbed some people and said, check out what this guy's doing. Man, I just want one moment like that before I breathe my last where Jesus stops other people in the tracks and says, come here, check this out. Look what Bill's doing. Look what Deborah's doing. Watch. It, it just it slays me. It just gripped me in such a powerful way. This commendation of the widow does not imply that we need to give away everything. It's not the point. It's about checking our attitudes and our dispositions concerning God and other gods. The widow's giving demonstrates an attitude of absolute trust in God. That's what her giving demonstrates. And it's a trust that I don't think I have right now. And I so desperately want to. And I hope you do too. Can I trust God like this widow with these two copper coins? It, it just blows my mind. Does it you too? blows my mind. So thankful for her. Let's pray. God, we're so grateful. You love us so much, Lord. And we need your help to love the same. God, we want to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. We want to love others as ourselves. It's hard, Lord. We're, we're so broken. We make mistakes. But you don't give up on us, Lord. And for that, we say thank you. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Change us, Lord, from the inside out. May we indeed, Lord, live foremost lives for you. Lord, may we trust like this poor widow trusted. May we hold nothing back. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your patience. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your word for this church. It's good to be together. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good to be with you guys. Enjoy the rest of the holiday weekend. Blessings, you guys.